The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 15. I know that a lot of you are visiting. We got a fair amount of parents that are in town because you were all busy last night watching some chickens weep over some fried chicken. Yes, that is, that's my shout out. Um... So you aren't up to speed because we actually began digging into this text last week. And as we began digging into the text, we're simply asking one central question. What does it look like to abide in Christ? I mean, that's what this text is about, right? That phrase or something like it is repeated over and over. The word for abide, minnow, it it repeats over and over throughout this text. So what does that mean? What does it look like to abide in Christ? In Christ. And in context, Jesus is giving these instructions on the eve of his departure. He's already celebrated the Passover, the Last Supper with his disciples. They're on a path. They are walking, headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be betrayed and he will head to his death. And even after his death, when he rises, he's still going to ascend. Like he's he started the process of no longer being physically present with his people, his disciples then, and, and us. He's not physically present. With us, he's departing. And he speaks these words on the eve of that departure that these disciples must live their lives abiding in him. Like a branch abides in a vine. He wants them to abide because, he also says over and over throughout the passage, he wants them to abide because he wants them to bear fruit. He says that explicitly in verse 8. He wants them to bear fruit to the glory of God. In other words, and we dug into this last week, in, in other words, he wants them to live a transformed, empowered life for God's glory. That's what fruit bearing is. We often associate fruit bearing with just doing good deeds or just sharing the gospel. You can do good deeds and share the gospel and not know Jesus. That's not at fruit bearing, is not doing good works. We can do those in our own power, which means they would be for our own glory because it's our power on display, us producing the, the fruit. No, fruit bearing is living our life not for our glory, but for God's. That's what's at the heart of fruit bearing. Living our life for the glory of God. And that will only happen through abiding. Jesus says, apart from abiding, we can do nothing. It means no true fruit bearing in his power for his glory. So we ask the question, what does it look like to do that? What does it look like to abide in Christ? Jesus answers this question by giving us three images to show us what abiding looks like. He tells us about a vine himself. He tells us about a vine dresser, his father, and he tells us about branches, us. And what we're doing is we're looking at these images one at a time. So last week, we looked at this true vine who is Christ himself. And what we saw was that abiding in Christ looks like depending on the Son's internal provision. Son, Jesus. Abiding in Christ 
looks like depending. That makes sense, doesn't it? We said he wants us to bear fruit for the glory of God. That can only be done by, abiding, by depending upon him so that what we're doing is done in his power, not ours. That's why it's for his glory. Abiding in Christ looks like depending on the Son's internal provision. If you want to hear that unpacked, you've got to catch the podcast from last week. The word abide, minnow, literally means to stay, to remain. And when you combine that with the context of a branch and a vine, then the word conveys a sense of continued dependence. Stay in the vine. Remain in the vine. Depend upon the vine. Abiding in Christ, or in other words, having true faith. It's another way we could say it. I mean, we talked about for an extended period last week that Abiding in Christ is not something that super next level Christians do. There's no such thing as a super next level Christian. It's just Christians. And this is what a Christian does. They abide because we're going to see today that if you do not abide, you are not a Christian. That's what the text clearly says. Abiding in Christ, having true faith, looks like depending on him. But, That is not the only image. The vine is not the only image Christ gives us to show us what abiding in him looks like. He doesn't just talk about himself as the true vine. He also talks about his father as the vine dresser. And this is an image we normally skip. We usually rush past it and just hop down to verse 5. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me. Why do we skip this? I, I think, I think we usually skip over this bit about the Father because we think these details about the Father are irrelevant. The part of the passage that's applicable to me, applicable to my relationship with Christ, is the vine and branches part, the Christ and me part. This bit about the Father, it can be skipped. Don't treat the Bible that way. The goal of you reading the Bible is not to figure out what applies to your life. That's making the Bible about me. The Bible's not ultimately about me. It's about God. The goal is not to apply the Bible to my life. The goal is to apply my life to the Bible. In other words, the goal is not to search through here and find the things that I think are useful. Because if that's what you do, most of it's going to feel not useful. I mean, Leviticus, just tear it out. Why would that be useful? But if my goal is to apply my life to the Bible, in other words, to shape my life around every truth that I see here, then all of a sudden Leviticus is extremely important because it teaches me about the holiness of God and about what it takes to approach God and about what it takes for the cleansing of sin. Leviticus defines the cross for me. And my life needs to be wrapped around what it means for God to be holy. This This part here about the Father, we usually skip it because we think they are insignificant details. But are they? Whenever I'm getting to know somebody new, like if 
if you take me up on what I said just a few minutes ago and you come up and introduce yourself and we go get coffee or something like that, whenever I'm getting to know someone new and they ask me to share my story with them, like where I'm from, how I grew up, I usually start by saying something like this. Well, my dad grew up in an orphanage in Corsicana, Texas. And they look at me really weird and confused. Like I'm sharing with them some irrelevant details that they didn't ask for. Jonathan asked for your story, not your, not your father's story. But I go on to share with them a brief version of my father's story. Because his story shapes my own. There are parts of my story that I don't think you can understand unless you know certain things about my father. My call to vocational ministry and the way that I thought about it, that won't make sense. My, my conception of what it looked like to be a minister, that won't make sense. Even where I grew up won't make sense unless you know some things about my father's story. His story changes everything about the way you see my story. And in John 15, we cannot begin to understand our story as a branch abiding in the vine of Christ without the story of the Father as the vine dresser. We can't skip this because what Jesus shares here about his Father shapes everything else to come. That's why he talks about this before he ever gets to the branches part. Because this is meant to shape how we see this. You can't understand your story, the events of your life, your relationship with Christ, the true vine. You cannot understand that apart from knowing the Father as the vine dresser. The Father as the vine dresser changes everything about the way you see your life. And people who skip over this run into all sorts of errors very quickly. And to abide as a branch in the vine, the vine gives me life, gives me good things so that I bear fruit. So that must mean that Jesus keeps me healthy and wealthy and we can laugh all we want to, but the largest church in America teaches this. You skip over the part about the vine dresser and you will run into error very quickly. This is meant to shape everything else. So, I want to know what does the vine dresser image teach us about what it looks like to abide in Christ? That's our question this morning. Let's begin answering it carefully by looking at John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We're just going to be, last week we were in verse 1 and verse 5. This week we're going to be in verses 1, 2, and 6. We're making tons of progress, people. So verse 1, I am the true vine, and that's weird, right from the beginning. This is Jesus' seventh I am statement in the Gospel of John. It's the only one that contains more than just him saying, I am blank. It's the only one that goes, and. There's something else you need to know about this image. There's something vitally important. So vitally important. This is unique from everything else I've said. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more 
fruit. Jesus wants us to know two things that his father, the vine dresser, does. He purges fruit-barren branches, and he prunes fruit-bearing branches. Takes away, purges, gets rid of. And verse 6 is going to tell us that they're gathered together and burned. In, in Jewish literature, being burned is always an image of eternal destruction, damnation, lost. He wants us to know that his father purges fruit-bearing branches and he prunes fruit-bearing branches. Purges and prunes. Okay, great. So we know that. So what? Why are these two things important? Why does Jesus, on the eve of his death, take time? Out of the little bit of time he's got left to say things, why does he take time to tell us these two actions of his father? I believe there are two reasons. He tells us about these two actions for two reasons. Reason number one he tells them about this is because this is happening and will happen to the disciples. This purging, this pruning, it's happening in the moment. As he's talking in this night, the purging and pruning is happening, and it will happen to them in the future. That's reason number one. Reason number two, this is happening and will happen for them. In other words, for their good. Why does he tell them about this? Because this is happening to them, and it's happening for them for their good. So here's what I want us to do for the rest of our time. I want us to take these two activities of the vine dresser one at a time. And I want to see how is it happening to them and how is it happening for them, for their good. I want us to see this so that we might be able to look at our own lives through the same lens so that we might be able to see how the vine dressers purging and pruning is happening to us and for us, for our good, for the sake of our abiding, depending on Christ. So first, let's look at the vine dressers. Everybody got the plan? That's where we're headed. Let's look at the vine dressers purging of the fruit barren branches. How is that happening to Christ's disciples and how is it happening for them, for their they're good. To see how the purging is happening to this group of disciples, all we need to do is flip back to John chapter 13. Same night when they're around the table eating Passover together. You can flip there if you want. John chapter 13, verse 21, there Jesus says this to his disciples. Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. Skip down to verse 26. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So just a few hours earlier than this John 15 speech, just a few hours earlier, Judas had already left the ranks of these disciples. And the next time they see their friend Judas again, it will be him betraying Jesus to his death. This man, Judas Iscariot, he, he had traveled with, lived with, eaten with, 
Jesus and these other disciples for three years. He heard the same teachings, saw the same miracles, ate at the same table. He talked the same, walked the same, looked the same, looked looked like the same kind of disciple as the rest, but he wasn't the same. Jesus already told us that back in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 64, Jesus said, there are some of you who do not believe. John, the author of the gospel, comments and says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. From the beginning. Jesus knew that Judas did not have authentic faith. There's some of you who do not believe. Those words were spoken to people who claimed to believe. People who looked like branches. And Jesus, the true vine, looks at him and says, some of you are not branches. Some of you don't have authentic faith. And and the Gospel of John specifically points at Judas as the quintessential example of false faith. It's not, hear me, it's not that Judas had authentic faith and then lost it. No, from the beginning, Jesus knew he did not have real saving faith. He did not believe. The faith that he had was false from the beginning. It is vital that we see that because there are many people who like to take our passage from John 15. Many people like to take our our passage from John 15, especially verse 2 and verse 6, that talk about these branches that don't bear fruit, that the Father cuts off, purges, they fall to the ground, they wither, they die, he bundles them up and he burns them. They, They take that and they use that image to say that authentic saving faith can be lost. That someone can can be truly saved and lose their salvation. They'll look at the passage and they'll say, they're called a branch, see? They're a real branch. They're connected to the vine, see? And verse 6 says, because they don't bear fruit, they're purged, gathered, burned. So if you want to be a true branch, you got to bear fruit. Usually this is used in some type of guilting format. And fruit is usually somehow attached to money. Shades, hear me. Not only is that works-based salvation an absolute heresy, but it is the exact opposite of what John 15 says. The text does not say that you bear fruit in order to be a true branch. But that because you are a true branch, you bear fruit. Is that not exactly what verse 8 says? Look down at it. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so, prove to be my disciples. The fruit proves what's at the root. The fruit proves what you are, that you're a disciple. You're, you're a true branch. You really are connected to the vine of Christ. You really depend on the vine. The, the, the fruit is evidence of that dependence. 
And it glorifies God. Those are the first words of verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. The fruit you bear glorifies God because you're depending upon His power through the vine. If you reverse that, like if you have to bear fruit in order to be a true branch, that fruit won't glorify God. It can't. Logically, it must glorify you. Because you're the one doing it in your own power to earn something. So you can boast in what you've done and in what you've earned. It's the exact opposite of verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This, this truth, we have seen it all over the Gospel of John. Different images, different ways of saying it. But the truth has been the same. True branches, true disciples abide in Christ. They stay in him. They remain in him. They persevere in him to the end because they are truly connected to him. And he is providing all the power they need to persevere. John John 6 and verse 37, Jesus says it clearly. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, you skip down to verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. So this is the will of God. Want to know what the will of God is? Here's a piece of it. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I should lose nothing. Christ says, I'm doing something. I'm keeping you. I'm holding on to you. That's the exact image he uses in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, he talks about us being planted firmly in his grip, and he will not let go or lose a single solitary person that he grips onto. First Peter, First Peter 5, I think, says it in a way that I love best. It says that we are being kept by God for the day of salvation. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Kept by God. This is all over not just the Gospel of John, but the New Testament, not just places like First Peter 5. But places like Philippians chapter 1, a verse you're probably familiar with, Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in us will, not might, not maybe, no dropouts. He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you, if you are truly connected to the vine who is Christ, he's begun a good work in you, he, not you will bring it to completion, he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. If you skip down in Philippians to verse 11, it says that this is what that's going to look like, that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Christ, the vine, through him, Bearing fruit through you. And because it's all by his powers to the glory of God, the entire New Testament speaks with a unified voice. True branches abide by the power the vine provides. True branches abide by the power the vine provides. False branches don't abide. They don't stay. They don't remain. Because there's no true connection to Christ. So there's no power for perseverance being provided. And in the end, they end up purged. John 15 and verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, doesn't stay. 
doesn't remain, which is only possible by the power provided by the vine. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. These are not branches that were truly connected to the vine. You know that because there's no life in them. They were barren. No true connection to the life-providing vine. And so in the end, they are cut off like, like Judas. The final evidence of Judas's falseness, Jesus knew it from the beginning. Nobody else did. To all the other disciples, Judas looked like a genuine disciple. I mean, do you remember when we were in John 13 and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me? All the disciples didn't go, oh yeah, Judas, duh. Like, if you ever see, you know, Christian art, Judas, you can always pick him out, right? Like, huge eyebrows, furrowed, big old, like, hook nose. Jesus says, one of you betray me. They didn't all go, oh, yeah, it's a little hook nose down here. <laughs> Saw that coming from a mile away. No. They had no clue who it was. They were asking if it could be themselves. They didn't know. Christ knew from the beginning. They didn't know. But the final evidence shown to all of Judas's falseness is that he didn't abide in the vine. He didn't stay. He didn't remain. The Apostle John, who wrote our gospel, probably says this most succinctly and clearly in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This is happening to the disciples of Jesus. Judas is being purged. I said earlier that it's not just happening to them, but for them. For their good. For the sake of their abiding. How, how does that work? It works because... It shows us, the Father's purging shows us that the Father is protecting us, he's protecting true branches from defection. We just saw that. We just walked through that. How he's keeping us by his power so that we will remain, abide, stay all the way to the end. He's showing us that the Father is protecting us from defecting, but more than that, Specifically, Jesus wants us to see that part of how the Father protects us is not just protecting us from defection, but protecting us from defectors. See, see that with me again. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He, the Father, takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he, the Father, prunes that it may bear more fruit. The Father is pictured here as sovereign in control of this. That's why he's the vine dresser. He's pictured as sovereign in control over the purging and the pruning. In other words, Jesus wants his disciples to know that what's happening with Judas right now, 
his defecting, it's not a surprise to the Father. It's not happening outside the rule of the Father. Satan may have entered into Judas, but Satan is not in control of the situation. Satan may be coming at these disciples and at Christ with everything that he's got, but he's not God, he's not in control, and he doesn't win. That's exactly what Jesus said at the end of John chapter 14, right? Before he gives us this picture of the vine dresser. Look again at the end of John 14, verse 30. Jesus said to the disciples, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world, that Satan, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Satan is coming but my father is commanding. Who do you think's in charge? Jesus wants his disciples to know that no matter what it looks like, no matter when you see Judas marching at us to betray us with torches and a cohort of guards, no matter what it looks like, my father, the vine dresser, is in control even over the purging. He's he's in control. He rules even over false branches that try to destroy the vine. They will fail every time. That's what Judas is going to do. He's going to try to destroy the vine of Christ. And he will fail miserably. Do, Do you see why the Father's purging work is good news? Not just for Christ's original disciples, but for us as well. God guards his church from those who would try to damage it from the inside. We'll get to the outside. That comes with the pruning. But God guards his church from those who would try to damage it from the inside. Those within the church who would try to destroy the church, be warned. There is a vine dresser who purges such branches. Those within the church who would try to destroy the church, we need not fear them. God, the gardener, is guarding his true vine and true branches. He purges to protect so that we will keep on persevering by the power that he provides and we'll keep on glorifying him. In other words, we'll keep bearing fruit, keep living by his power for his glory. When I'm When a literal vine dresser purges a a, a vine of barren branches, he does so in order that fruit-bearing branches might bear more fruit. That's what the text says in verse 2, right? That doesn't just apply to the pruning. It also applies to the purging of dead branches. They do that so they'll bear more fruit. They do that so that the barren branches don't crowd out the life. And God still today will not allow barren branches to crowd out the life of true branches. In other words, perhaps perhaps sometimes you find yourself looking at the church, and I'm not just talking about shades, I'm talking about the church. Whether you're talking about in America or you're talking global. Perhaps you find yourself looking at the, the church and you begin to feel hopeless because you see it riddled by scandal, hypocrisy, losing its voice. That would be specifically in Western culture, gaining a voice elsewhere. 
Perhaps you see, you, you lose hope because you see the church riddled by false teachers everywhere. Or maybe you look at the things that Christians, Christians on social media say, on Facebook and, and Twitter, and it just looks like the church is tear, being torn a, apart. Perhaps in your own experience you've been burned or hurt by those within the, the church. I've got good news for you. The vine dresser is sovereignly in control and he will not let dead, barren branches crowd out the life of the vine. He will handle them in due time. He is tending his church. He is building it. And we have a promise that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. The Father's sovereign purging protects your abiding. It's good news. But the purging is only the first work that Jesus tells us about the Father. There's a second. The Father also prunes. He also prunes. I want us to see how is that pruning happening to these disciples and how is it happening for these disciples, for their they're good. So first, how is the pruning going to happen to them? Because it will. Not it might. It will. Look, look at verse 2. It says, every branch. How many branches? Every branch. All of them. Every branch that does bear fruit, he, the Father, prunes. It happens. Either you are being pruned, have been pruned, or will be pruned, and sometimes all three at once. Pruning is a, it's a cutting away. And, and don't think light trimming. I don't know how many of you are gardeners. I'm no horticulturist myself. But I do have access to YouTube. And I may or may not have watched several videos this week on how to prune a vineyard. Now consider myself an expert and I have a backup profession. But no, seriously, you should go. You should go to YouTube, Google pruning a vineyard, and you should watch this stuff. It's horrifying. Like, try to put yourself from the perspective of a plant, because that's what we are in John 15. So think of it from that perspective. While you watch, like, vine dressers just go in there and get after these vines, and it looks like they're hacking them to death. They're, they're, they're cutting them back until they look like they're, they're bare, and there's just sap bleeding out everywhere. It's like a horror film. You'd swear the plant was dead, that there's no way it could survive the pruning process. But here's what's interesting. Watch these videos, especially if the vine dressers describe to you why they're doing what they're doing. I'm not talking about Christian people who work in vineyards trying to make an illustration convenient for John 15. I'm just talking about general vine dressers. They'll tell you that the pruning is the most important work they do. It's the most important work they do for the branches. They'll tell you that the quality and character, they use those words, the quality and character of the fruit is dependent upon the cutting. It's dependent upon the pruning. It's clear just from the image itself that pruning involves pain. 
and no Christian is immune from pain. Remember I said we get into trouble if we skip over what the Father does, that it helps us understand our story, our life, in light of our abiding in Christ? If we skip over this, we may think that abiding in Christ, the vine who gives life, makes us immune from pain. And this says no, that God himself prunes painfully. As we keep going through John chapter 15, it's going to become even clearer that this pain for the disciples, for us, will also involve persecution. Skip down to verse 20. Jesus says, remember the, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus is going away and he says the pruning shears are coming and they're coming in the form of pain and persecution. This is going to happen to the disciples, but not just to them. It's going to happen for them. For their their good. I know that because of the final words of verse 2. Look at it one more time. It tells us why the Father prunes. Every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. A vine dresser prunes the branches in order to maximize their connection to the vine. My gardeners, what do you Y'all know what they call those little, little bitty things on, on plants that are taking away nutrients that the main plant actually needs? Suckers. These are the things you prune. You're sucking the life out of it. The vine dresser prunes in order to maximize the connection. In order to, to maximize the, the life being received by the branch so that it might bear maximum fruit. The Father prunes us in order that we depend more on the provision of the vine, His Son. Remember we said what abiding looks like? It looks like depending upon the Son. And here comes the Father pruning to increase our dependence, to increase our abiding, to make it deeper. To make us rely more on Christ because other things in our life that we were relying on are getting cut out. He he prunes in order that we might depend more on Christ, abide in Him, depend on Him for the life that He provides. The The best scriptural examples I can think of this, both for persecution and for pain, as a form of pruning so that we depend more on Christ. The best scriptural examples I can think of come out of 2 Corinthians, both of them. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he describes persecution that he and his fellow missionary journeyers, he, he describes persecution they experienced in Asia. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see it? Persecution, pruning through persecution so great that it feels like a death sentence. It looks like a death sentence, like a bind dresser just hacking and cutting. It looks like death. 
Paul says that's not what actually is going on. It felt like a death sentence, but it was designed to make them depend not on themselves but on Christ. It was designed to increase their abiding. This is what pruning does for a branch. It makes it draw more and more on the life within the vine. Paul says that's what persecution did to him. It, it, it removed from his life things that he thought he could rely on so he would depend more upon God and God alone. He doesn't just say that about persecution. Paul also says that about pain. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, one of the most infamous passages in the New Testament, Paul writes about a thorn in his flesh, something painful. Some painful experience given to him that he prays three different times for God to take it away. And God's answer is no, because my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, no, I'm not going to take it away because it's going to make you depend on me. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's when the power of Christ rests on me. Me And Paul ends up rejoicing over this painful pruning because through it he gets more of Christ. This is what it looks like to abide. I'll put it in a sentence. I told you I would do this each week. Abiding looks like submitting to the Father's external pruning. External, it's coming at us. Pain and persecution. Abiding looks like submitting to the Father's external pruning. Last week, we saw that abiding looks like depending on the Son's internal provision. This week, it's submitting to the Father's external pruning. In other words, knowing the details about the Father as the vine dresser, knowing what He's doing and why He's doing it changes everything about the way you see your life about how you think about your story. Paul looks at persecution and says, that looked like a death sentence. It was to make us depend on Christ. Paul, Paul looks at pain and says that that was to make us depend on Christ. It, it was pruning aimed at increasing my abiding. Therefore, I'll rejoice in it because through it I get more of Jesus. When Holly and I go through marriage troubles, it happens, people. I don't know if you thought that we had a perfect marriage. I can see why you would think that we have a perfect marriage. It makes us depend upon Christ. Because I can't find the resources in myself. She can't find them in me. I can't find them in her. Only in Christ. When I was in seminary and we were living on $12,000 a year with two kids, and praying so that she could be a stay-at-home mom. That'll make you depend on Jesus, people. The last two times my wife has given birth, she's hemorrhaged afterwards. And let me tell you, when you're at home and your wife begins to have the symptoms of a stroke and you rush her to the ER, you find yourself depending upon Christ. When she's having to receive a blood transfusion, you find yourself depending upon Christ. Right now, she's pregnant again. We've told that to y'all, and we're very excited, but we find ourselves having to depend on Christ. Because it's a very scary prospect. Pruning is painful. 
but it makes us depend more on Jesus. It increases our abiding so we rejoice because through it we get more of Jesus. You can't understand your story and everything that happens and the pain and the persecution that you experience. We can't understand our lives apart from knowing the Father is the vine dresser who's pruning to increase our abiding. So we submit, we rejoice, we joyfully submit to his pruning. Even though it's painful providence, we submit to it, trusting him, knowing it's for his glory and it's for our good. It's aimed at our ultimate joy because it's aimed at giving us more of Jesus, and Jesus is our joy. So I submit to his pruning. I don't, I don't reject it. I don't, I don't say, to heck with his pruning. I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? I'm if this is the way you're going to treat me, God, I'm out. I'm gone. This isn't what I signed up for. Really? Did you hear the invitation? If anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone loves father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me. If anyone puts his hand to the plow and even glances back, he is not worthy. Did you hear the invitation? We submit to his, we don't reject his pruning. That is what false branches do. And they are purged. True branches, true disciples abide by submitting to the Father's pruning. That doesn't mean you just put on a happy face. Like when I say that I, I rejoice or I joyfully submit to the Father's pruning, that doesn't mean I wear a plastic smile and act like the pruning's not painful. It's not. That's not what I'm talking about. Paul didn't do that. Back to 2 Corinthians 12. When, when Paul was given his thorn in the flesh, that painful experience that wouldn't go away, listen to how he described it. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul says the thorn was a messenger from who? Satan. Yet he also says it was given to him in order to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from pride. Well, whose purpose is that? It's not Satan's. It's God's purposes. So is the thorn, I'm confused, Paul, is the thorn from God? Or is it a messenger from Satan? You want to know Paul's answer? Yes. Yes, Paul talks about it in both ways. He can talk about the thorn as a messenger from Satan sent to destroy his faith. And he can talk about how it was given to him by the sovereign God to protect his faith from pride. That is true of every piece of pain and persecution in your life. Every single piece of it. You can talk about it as Satan's evil work. Satan tries to destroy my marriage through marital problems. He tries to destroy my faith through financial struggles. He tries to get me to doubt the goodness of God through my wife's difficult birth processes. I can talk about these 
things, every single tragedy in my life. I can talk about it as the devil at work to destroy my faith. But simultaneously, I can proclaim the good news of the gospel that Satan isn't ultimately sovereign over any of these things. Through them, he doesn't win. God is at work to use them to increase my faith. He is pruning you and me so that we depend all the more on the life-giving vine. So we submit to the Father's external pruning. This is what it looks like to abide in Christ.